0: and welcome to Scottish Independence Podcasts. This week we're going to be sharing a Zoom call that Yes, Glasgow Southside held with Craig Dale. There were discussion and Q&A about the Commonweal New Book Sorted. You might remember we covered the launch event of that back in December. And this is Craig giving a little of his perspective on on the book. There's a bit in it where Craig's talking about the the pressures on women in politics. And although this was recorded before the First Minister's resignation, quite prescient remarks from Craig there, I think. Also, you'll note that one of the audience gave us a little plug. We left that bit in, obviously. That's how modest we are. Anyway, enjoy. And if you'd like to buy the book, you can get it from Commonweal's website, commonweal.scot.
1: Thank you for having me and thank you for giving me the opportunity to, to talk to you all about uh, Commonweal's latest book, Sorted: a Handbook for a Better Scotland. I'll start off by just saying, what is it? This is a 10-year blueprint for an independent Scotland. It, it's really a distillation of a lot of what Commonweal has has spent in the last decade, and I'll talk about, more about that in a, uh, in a couple of slides. Everything that we've done, we've poured into this book, plus more, um, because we found that even amongst our vast and broad policy library, there were there were areas that we hadn't yet covered. This is, in many ways, the country that I want to, to, to see. This is the Scotland that I want to help to build. So why did we write it? Why this book in particular? In many ways, it's the book that a lot of people think Commonweal had written, but we haven't. So in 2018, we published uh, how to start a new country. This was a three-year blueprint that took us in a very, very specific period between the day after an independence referendum, uh, however that referendum looks, at what, whenever it takes place. But from the day after that, through a three-year period of building Scotland into the kind of country that can actually run itself a, a, a modern nation state, up to the point of independence day, Um, Because right now, Deval Scotland doesn't have a lot of the government infrastructure and and departments that we need to run a full country. A lot of it is still run from London uh, on our behalf, um, from from Westminster. Um, So how to start a new country? Just looked at those departments and how we would replicate them in Scotland or how we would build them in Scotland. We deliberately kept that book as future neutral as possible because we recognised that the point of independence, or even that period before Independence Day, was not the time to start playing party politics. We had to build a Scotland that anyone in Scotland could then engage with democratically. If we went in and said, right, well here is our party manifesto for an independent Scotland, and by the way, we control how, they, how an independent Scotland is going to be set up. Therefore, we are making our plans. And if you disagree with them tough, that's not democratic. It's not democratic even if you do agree with them. So we deliberately kept Commonwealth's vision for an independent Scotland out of how to start a new country. In 2019, we published our common home plan, the world's first nation-scale Green New Deal plan. Um, and I believe still the only one. Other countries are start starting to catch up in that respect, but no, no one's quite hit the 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 full gamut that the Common Home Plan hit. Now, this is a twenty five year strategy to create a Green New Deal and to climate proof Scotland. And um, to, to do our part to um, avert the climate emergency and to do our part to mitigate against it and to adapt to the damage that we've already caused. And I do say we, we are one of the rich countries that has disproportionately caused this climate emergency. Now, while this book contains a bit more commonweal, it's still largely based on really the science and the engineering of climate change. There may have been choices where we said, right, we could go technology A, we could go technology B. What is the more Commonweal option? Right, that's the one we've picked. But largely, we're just following the science of climate change. And there's also more to Scotland than just climate change. So there was still a gap there. And this is what Sorted aims to fill. 2023 marks the, t- the 10th anniversary of Commonweal. Um, And we're hoping to have a bit of a party about that later in the year. So keep an eye on on the announcements for that. We've published something like 200 policy papers and other policy documents. Uh, I'll have to go back and count them all (laughs) to get an exact count. We've covered all kinds of topics and they're all based on our all of us first ethos. So this was the time to bring all of that that vast body of knowledge together and knit them into a coherent story of the kind of Scotland that we want to see from a common real perspective. We're not expecting everyone to agree that that is the way that they want to uh, see Scotland, but we want to set that ground of this is what we want. If you want something else, let's talk, let's discuss, let's do a democracy. Um, But this is the book that everyone thought we did and we now have. Now what's in it? If I go through all 19 chapters, I'll be here till next week. I could honestly give you an hour's lecture on each one of them. So I'm only going to give you the briefest of tasters, um, and we can maybe tease a wee bit more out in the Q&A. But it covers everything from civics to democracy to tax to industrial strategy to energy policy through care and health and defence and security and um, international affairs, it, it really is a prospe- a, bigger, a broader prospectus for an independent country as we could imagine. It's also chock full of the most gorgeous artwork. Um, a couple of the, the bits of art in this book genuinely brought me to tears when I saw them for the first time. Um, but if you've already got a copy of the book, you probably know which ones I'm, I'm, I'm talking about. So the chapter on democracy. If we become independent, and the only thing we do is take all of the powers that sit at Westminster and move them to Hollywood. That's not going to put Scotland on the best footing. That would actually make Scotland the most centralized country in Europe. There's probably probably dictatorships out there that are more decentralized than that would that than that would make Scotland. Because we lack a lot of the democratic structures that is that are considered normal in a lot of Europe, so we need to build them up at the same time. We need municipal-scale democracy. We need a written constitution to check abuses on po- against power, to protect our democracy against those who would corrupt it for, for their own uh, uh, aims. Throughout all of it, we want citizens' assemblies to oversee and guide and regulate politicians, and we really mean that from at all levels. Our local democracy paper, de- Development Councils, sees all of our municipal councils guided and controlled by citizens' assemblies. But we also have a plan to, instead of having a House of Lords, uh, the way the UK does, overseeing um, the the, the legislative, legislative chamber, we want a House of Citizens. We want a Citizens' Assembly overseeing what is currently the Hollywood Parliament. In our chapter on money, we are straight up, Scotland needs its own currency as soon as possible. Without that, you just simply lack a lot of the tools that you need to build the, the, the country in the early days. We talk about how Scotland's budgets, rather than be set on a, a, a strict year-to-year basis, which encourages a lot of short-term thinking, we should start thinking long-term and have at least part of the national budget looking in five- and ten-year cycles. Government's starting to edge towards that kind of thinking, um, but it's, it's, it's still early days for that. The big thing that we are uh, really pushing, and uh, if there's anyone in the, the audience who knows about uh, modern monetary theories or related um, sections of economics, we really recognise that the job of government isn't to balance the, the national budget, balance the government budget but to balance the money system across across the whole. A government that balances its own books and does so by breaking your back with austerity is failing its duty towards you. So we we are trying to build a Scotland that works on that holistic view rather than just narrowly focusing on one area of one budget. And that relates to the chapter on tax. We have to accept that when the moment we become independent, we are going to inherit a lot of the UK's dysfunctions. The UK economy is debt-based. It's based on on a speculative economy, especially on things like land and housing, which are severely overvalued. These things need to be deleveraged so that we don't cause uh, chaos as prices fall. Um, We also need a SANE tax code. A lot of the UK's tax code has been written just to fill it full of loopholes and a lot of those loopholes have been written by those who want to jump through them and adjust their tax affairs for maximum efficiency for themselves which usually means how can we more easily get our money to a tax haven sometimes that tax haven's overseas sometimes it's not we are going to be talking about new taxis that Scotland could bring in some of these we can bring in now but Certainly, in an independent Scotland, one of the big ones that we are uh, talking about is an externality tax. This is a tax on the harm that products create when when they come in when they're when they're produced. So it incorporates things like carbon taxes. It incorporates a tax on the use of plastic in its design or the use of. Uh, destruct, you know, mining or other unsustainable practices might even include things like uh, um, unsustainable working conditions in its, in its use, especially if you're importing those goods. And the idea being, you essentially price out the bad goods that are causing harm to the economy and make it easier to make the good goods cheaper. Taking that idea, going into the economy chapter, We need to deconsumerize. Consumer capitalism is entirely based on a model of buy a shiny thing, throw it in the bin, buy a shinier thing tomorrow, throw that in the bin, do it again, do it again. We experiment for you. The next time you're you're watching, especially broadcast television, and it gets to the the ad break, um, do people still watch broadcast television with ad breaks anymore? They're all streamed online. (laughs) Look at the adverts that are getting put at you how many of them are actually trying to sell you the happiness that comes with buying a new shiny thing? And how many of them are, when you actually look at the advert, trying to sell you the misery of not buying one? Your life is incomplete unless you buy this shiny thing and then throw it in the bin and buy our next shiny thing next year. This is unsustainable. We want to move to a model where we are borrowing more leasing more and I'm, I've seen some really good stuff about uh, expansions of tool libraries in Glasgow and um, today so really well done to the folk who are doing that we need more of them every community needs a tool library we want to repair more our economic indu- and industrial strategies well first we need one and <laughs> we can't just be uh, releasing a new headline about hiring a new bu- business advisor and then waiting six months until we realise that they haven't done anything and hiring another one. We need a, a, an actual long-term economic and industrial strategy coming from the government because the government is not some invisible hand bystander that 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 is hindering the economy and it's always best if they get out of the way, which is the, the, the free market, libertarian, conservative view of things. The government is an active player in the economy. It employs people in the public sector, employs people in the private sector sometimes as well. And it does things like national procurement, which shape the market and the economy around you. So part of that economic and industrial strategy is about how the government uses national procurement to buy smart, to buy local, and to fill gaps that the the, the, the so-called free market uh, isn't filling. This could even include things like uh, a national job guarantee scheme. What it can't be doing is what it often does right now, is just buy the cheapest things possible, or sometimes not even the cheapest because it gets embroiled in very expensive PFI schemes. This was a phrase that, 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 that came at us as we were, we were developing things. You are not your GDP growth. You are not just some actor whose sole role in an economy is to make that economy bigger an economy has to serve you it has to serve people and part of that is the place that you fill in not just the economy but in society and in your community so a lot of that has been eroded we need to start rebuilding that sense of community around us a lot how many of us live in a uh live in an area where really the main role is what's known as a dormant dormitory village where the folk around you all they're doing is commuting somewhere else to, to, to do their job or do their social life um, that might have eroded somewhat since the pandemic although maybe it's coming back we need to build that sense of community that sense of local value and that sense of place so in this this, this chapter we're talking about things like community hubs we're talking things about a town center first approach to to your local area which embeds small local businesses in your community that that you can engage with, rather than driving out of town to the, the 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 big department store that is almost certainly shipping its profits overseas. A lot of us are talking about the, the the health crisis and the care crisis at the moment, and it is a crisis, there's a lot to to do right now about that, but. In this book, we are looking at the long term of uh, of that as well. Um, If you've been following Commonweal for a while, you know that we have produced a blueprint for a national care service that should make us as proud to support as the National Health Service does. And a lot of that work from that blueprint has made it into Sorted as well. Our biggest principle here is care must be publicly owned, must be not for profit and must be free at the point of view. It's exactly the same conditions that we demand from the health service as well. We want it to be controlled locally, not completely and utterly controlled potentially by the Care Minister, which is the current case for the the Scottish National Care Bill. And we want it really to be delivered almost at the same level as you would expect your GP. We want a community hub in your community where you, if you feel you need care, and everybody needs care, or you feel you need help to care for someone else, then you can walk in and they can be the point of entry that then gets you the service that you need. We're also clear that the staff working for the care service must be cared for as well. So we have strong demands for things like national collective bargaining to maintain wages and conditions. One of the big things that an independent Scotland will have to face in a way that it Scotland or really does not is our position in security and our defence. We are clear, the common view is Scotland should be a force for peace in the world. And when we're looking at the threats to Scotland, of which there are some, we, they do have to be handled appropriately and with a rational risk assessment. Scotland is not the kind of country that will need a blue water navy capable of unilaterally invading another country. We are advocating a non-aligned stance, which means not joining NATO. Now, this is not the same as being isolationist, but it does mean that uh, Scotland can approach even uh, the global threats that are happening, such as Mm things that are happening in the world right now, and we can approach them again rationally and in the best interests of the world in that sense of a force for peace rather than being dragged into someone else's war. Scotland, we think, should sign the Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, and we should start actively contributing to ending global nuclear threats, including the ones that are currently based within our borders. I've been a wee bit disturbed by some of the voices in Scottish government circles and uh, um, some of the parties around here that are starting to kind of water down commitments to signing TPNW, starting to say that, well, if Scotland joins NATO, then we can take the, the, a Norwegian approach or a Swedish approach to nuclear weapons where we will not have them permanently based in Scotland and we will make sure Trident leaves Scotland, but we might just have them visit from time to time. If we sign TPNW, that would not be possible. And finally, Scotland needs to look towards its reputation in the world. International reputation is important and, as we've seen with global Britain, very easy to lose. The Brexit debacle has really opened the world's eyes to... What Britain is, Britain got a big pass in the world, especially in Europe, but elsewhere as well, where the, its, its mastery of diplomacy was taken as a, a given, and uh, Britain was given a pass on, on, on many things because of that. People's eyes are opened. They're now sort of looking at Britain in a different way, starting to actually listen to what Britain's saying and do, looking at what Britain's doing, and that reputation has been eroded. A newly independent Scotland will take time to master the intricacies of, of international diplomacy. We will make mistakes, but it is worth the time and investment. You only have to look at the contribution that, that other small and medium-sized countries around the world have been making, including on things like TPNW, where now half of the world's countries have signed up to it. Large parts of Africa, large parts of uh, uh, South America, large parts of the Pacific are all signed up to this international treaty, and that membership is growing by the day. By dint of our geography, Scotland is going to be standing between the spheres of influence of the EU and global Britain. It's clear now that we cannot be part of both. Scotland, if it remains part of the UK, will not be re-entering the EU. None of the major UK parties are advocating rejoining the EU, not even uh, formerly pro-EU parties like Labour or the Lib Dems. So independent Scotland is going to have to make that choice. Do we lean towards Britain and its economy or do we lean towards the EU? Leaning towards one will mean leaning necessarily away from the other. There's no real best of both worlds anymore here. So we're going to have to start thinking about uh, how we arrange our borders and how we arrange our immigration policy. These are going to have to be rational and they're going to be as low friction as possible. It's a very complex area, so um, I'll, uh, I'm not going to go into too much more detail on that, other than to say, this does not mean free ports. If you've been watching the news over 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 the past uh, week or so, Scotland's now going to be host to two new green free ports. One of which is in Cromarty. One of which is in Forth. These freeports are, are not just a couple of warehouses down by the harbour side. They cover, cover zones up to 45 kilometres away from that harbour, which means that places as far away from Edinburgh as Bigger and Curlouk and Motherwell are now within the fourth, fourth freeport zone. And any company in these zones who wants a tax break can sign up to its conditions. That's no way to run an economy, no way to run international trade. Freeports don't work, they never have. On that, why should you read Sorted? Currently, we think it's the only comprehensive foundational plan for an independent Scotland. And we're hoping that um, even those who don't agree with it can use it as a, a launchpad pad to, to produce their own. When we were having team meetings about the, about the book and what we wanted to say to people, One of the things I asked for was that when I opened the first page of this book, I'd get a sense of hope for the future. And by the time I finished it and closed the last page, I'd have a sense of determination to bring that hope to life. And (laughs) you might think I'm biased and I am, but genuinely that's the sense I got from it when I read read the book for the first time. And if you do, if you follow me in that, and you have that hope and you gain that determination. If you want to help make that Scotland happen, join us, join our campaign and help us help us get there. So thank you. As always, Commonweal as an organization, we're entirely funded by donors and supporters. We don't get government money, we don't have large corporate grants. And um, you know, we're utterly reliant on folk like yourself. So if you're not a donor, then please, please sign up and help us produce our policy papers, produce more of these books, and produce the campaign to support them. If you are already a donor, and I know times are tough, but if you're able to increase that donation, that's also just as valuable. Or if you can convince a friend to to sign up as well, that's even better. Go onto our website, download all of our policy papers, have a browse in our shop, see if there's anything else else there that takes your fancy. And if you'd like to join our campaign centre, there's links there too. Thank you. And I'm happy to have a little blither.
2: Simon, do you want to come in and ask a question?
3: Um, Yes, I do. But before I ask my question, can I say how nice it is to be on a call with Marlene Halliday and Fiona McGregor? Because I watch your uh, show on Independence Live a lot and you're always very articulate. So my question is this. There's a lot of things that um, I want to discuss, I want to argue with you about and so on. But is there a forum where we can do this? And where's where's our chance to say you're wrong about this? I need to tell you what you're doing, <laughs> what we should do about care or whatever. Where's the where's the chance to come back to you?
1: Hmm. The best place to do that is probably um, probably our campaign centre. Um, if if you you want to raise uh, raise something in a small work group and and, and have a proper wee discussion about it in a way that you you just can't do on platforms like Twitter or similar uh hesitate to to name it in case you know Elon Musk appears over my shoulder um but yeah come into the campaign center and ask some questions if if you if you really want I can maybe see about setting up a dedicated group for um sorted
4: discussion she's saying freeport
2: simply mean uh, simply a means for UK government to retain a foothold in Scotland. Uh, the investment is minuscule, 26 million over two years for each greenport. Small potatoes.
1: I'd say less a less a foothold and more an influence. They're, they're certainly stamping their mark down um, because the entire purpose of, of freeport is to lift government control away. Um, these are these are are enclaves where. You're not checking the taxis. you're not checking the regulations. You're, you're explicitly saying regulations will be will be reduced, possibly reducing the means by which you're you're checking to see if they're complying with the regulations that remain. And um, on the Commonweal policy podcast this week, I, I spoke to to Richard Murphy, who's, in addition to his other, Many talents in tax and accounting has uh has been looking at freeports in some detail for many years now. Um, so if you haven't haven't listened to the podcast, then, um, then please check that out. There's there's a lot a lot of nice detail in there about what's actually going on in these in these new green freeports.
5: Thanks,
6: Shane. Uh, hi, Craig. Thanks for coming along tonight. Um, Craig, you, you mentioned the other campaign centre, and I think. Uh, to campaign to make the the better Scotland or an even better Scotland, as I would describe it. Uh, can you yes. just elaborate? Can you elaborate a bit on that? What is the campaign? What's the objective of the campaign, or what's the nature of the campaign?
1: Well, the campaign for for Sorted specifically is it's not just promoting the Common Real Vision uh, for Scotland um, and and essentially trying to to. Get as many people agreeing with us as possible because we can then use that to lobby political parties and get them to, 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 to agree with um, the policies in there and bring them closer to our vision of what what they want to see. Even if they're dead set against it, it's about raising the bar of political discussion in Scotland. I've, I've long maintained that a government only needs to be one vote better than its opposition. We've seen in politics a general decline in in, in policy making across all um, political parties. So, if we can say even to the people who abjectly disagree with you with us, well, fine, disagree with us, but disagree with us at this standard, and we can raise that game up even further.
6: The reason I ask Craig is obviously we're here as campaigners to try and achieve independence, not for its own sake, but as a means to a beginning. Uh, a beginning, which I've got my copy sorted, was um, there. But I suppose something just to share. I think we've still got this confusion of, I suppose, this common we will see independence as the means to the beginning. Therefore, we need to realise that to really gain momentum on the progressive change towards the policies you propose, um, or is it more just to try and achieve policy by policy, whatever the context
1: that's actually a really good question that takes me personally um right back to the start of my political career which was in 2013 when I just got radicalized by the by the independence campaign because it was the early days of commonweal that got me interested in it and it, um it rapidly the entire independence debate then switched from me saying, okay, we really I really want independence. And this Commonweal thing is something that would be quite nice to do afterwards to okay, I really want this Commonweal thing. Independence is one of the stages that Scotland needs to go through to get it. Um so it's a it's a it's a symbiotic relationship. We cannot do the full Commonweal thing unless Scotland is independent. There are stuff that we can do now You do see us campaigning thing on on things like improving care, improving um, public owned energy, that kind of thing, um, improving devolved taxation. But we're very clear that you can only go so far in, in the devolved context. We do need to make that leap to independence. If we want to keep going, this is the vision we're aiming for. Therefore, will you join us and support independence so we can get it? That's kind of our our that's our independence manifesto in a nutshell.
6: Yeah, and that's kind of partly why I, why I ask. And there's that kind of dichotomy or a chicken and egg situation there. And um, just to declare my own personal interest. So I have the book. I haven't read it all yet. I started, I don't know, 30 pages. I'd have to say I agree with every word that I've read so far. So it enthused me. Um, I was at the book launch in Drygate. Uh, And I was enthused that day as well, and particularly by some of the speeches that kind of recognised an end to uh, division and and working together and and maybe not criticising other people's views, but starting to share them as well. Here's one possibility, here's another possibility, what's yours? And as you say, try to engage people uh, to participate in the discussion. Um, Then the very next day... (laughs) Uh, from that hope and enthusiasm, I was completely enraged, to be honest, to see the headlines in the the Sunday Herald, um, which after shelling out my twenty quid for the book and leaving enthused, said the Yes movement's a mess and needs taking the hands out of the taking out of SNP's hands, and then had a two page spread in the middle, and I, I just share that versus the bit yesterday in the paper which has caused your book to sell out versus that sort of approach. And I think I, I think I appeal <laughs> to use mm. all your great work, but to achieve that first day of independence as a means to beginning. And it means coming together. And all this nonsense that we have to be separate from the SNP or the Yes Movement, we all have to be together. Um, and the, the SNP is, was, and is the is the Yes Movement of it and we want to bring other people into the fold Um, and I'm not speaking on behalf of the SNP here but I'm I'm speaking on an opportunity to say for goodness sake can we practice what we preach when we say we want to end division and reference other people's views but not criticize and I mean basically from a positive on the Saturday we had a complete negative on the Sunday so I hope that makes some sense and you can hear the kind of
1: I can hear. Yeah. yeah. No, thank you yeah. for that. Thanks.
4: Thanks. I was just uh, wondering if there were any local commonweal groups still in existence. I mean, you know, although I was a member uh, in Southside, uh, I never actually went to any of the meetings, so mere culpa there, sorry about that. Uh, but I can see some folk on here that I know were involved, but I, uh, are, is that now inactive or... Is there anything, do uh, you know, Craig, about a branch structure in Glasgow?
1: I mean, the COVID did a number on the groups. Um, it was it was very difficult to keep a lot of them together. Some of them are still active. They were always autonomous from Commonweal, so they were always as active as they were themselves. Um, but if you get if you drop us an email, do something at, at common and that's our our main portal for. Um, for coordinating people and linking them into their local groups, so whether that means linking them into to to still ex- still extant groups or linking people together to reform or form groups, then then we can help do that. We are wanting to get that presence back out there.
2: As how can we encourage more municipal level democracy? A community council is ninety percent retired white men. How can we make it more representative? <laughs>
1: My community council doesn't exist. Around half of uh Scotland's communities don't have a community council. Some community councils are wonderful. I will say that straight up. Some of them do a lot of good work and do have a, a strong sense of, of of local democracy. Um some of them are closer to what Fiona describes, I'm afraid. Um a lot of that is because we have not trusted our local local democracies to 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 hold power, to, to be able to do anything. I I wrote uh, an article a few months ago um, comparing Scotland's local democracy to Germany's local democracy. Pick Germany because my my, my father-in-law lives in an area that is demographically very, very similar to the area I live in. A small village next to a slightly larger town, next to a major regional city within uh, a larger state, and the, the numbers are all fairly similar. Um, The amount of public funding, as a percentage of all public funding, spent on him, um, that is controlled by his municipal council, it's about 15%. For me, it's zero, because we don't have one. Um, (laughs) So, how do we encourage better municipal level democracy? We need to build it from basically the ground up. We need to invest local democracy with power. Um, power over revenue, power over taxes, and we need to make them as open as possible. So they will have in our de- in our development council's paper, we do talk about the electoral structure for how we elect people onto the council. But we also talk about that very important community level citizens' assembly that would would oversee and would regulate the um, the development council. Your local democracy is only as good as people can engage with it. So it has to be built in a way that as many people can engage with it as possible. Um, and that's been a big barrier at all levels of politics, um, especially for women. You'll have seen the news today of um, uh, uh, of the, the New Zealand PM saying, OK, I'm reaching burnout. Now it's time to step back. Well done to her. How many men would have done that? <laughs> um Look at the the last election in Scotland, where several female MSPs stepped down and ended their political careers because they couldn't reconcile working in politics with with family life. And that's a big problem. That's a big sign that Scotland is too centralised. Local democracy, making it easier for people to engage with actual democracy and actual power in the community, allows more people to get involved and, and broaden that spectrum of of, of people who are actually doing things in their community. It is kind of a, if you build it, they will come uh, issue, but you have to build it and allow people in. And right now the, the community council structure is almost designed to push people out because why bother? You don't have any power.
2: Craig, have you had any feedback or comments unsorted from any political parties?
1: Not from political parties. Um uh, although, you know, we have had people in politics come back and say that uh, they've liked the book. Um I haven't had many people come back and say they don't like the book, but <laughs> maybe they're just being quiet. <laughs>
5: Well, I think this is a tremendous piece of work. Um, I was at the launch and I bought the book and I've been working my way uh, through it and it's uh, it's, it's a fascinating um, account. Um, and I think Commonwealth is doing a fantastic job in stimulating that discussion. I've, I've only been in Scotland for six years, as you can tell from my accent. I'm not uh, not from around these parts. But um, yeah, it's, it's definitely been one of the positive things and particularly commend Craig for the work That I've seen him do over that time uh, in doing this, I've got three problems. The first is the title and the very uh, approach of a blueprint sorted. You know, we've got all the answers here. Here it is sorted. Um, And now I know the book doesn't say that when you delve into it, but you know, it it worries me that there's there's this approach of a blueprint. And the, the thing that is missing uh, entirely from this is the whole, I mean, and I agree, it, the first section on page 44 uh, in Democracy is a written constitution and the problem is how do we get that constitution how do we establish it now the way in which previous states have done this is by the election of a thing called a constituent assembly or a constitutional assembly that's totally separate from the existing parliament and governmental structures that already exist because its sole purpose is to write a constitution not to run the country but also you know the idea that constituent you know we have to have a balance between constituencies and um uh uh, uh party representatives Um, And I have a problem with that because it turns constituency representatives into glorified social workers rather than people who are actually running and deciding the country. What I do think is very positive about it is the whole idea of uh, local. Uh, Democracy and the proposals of municipalism. Um, But I I just don't think they go far enough. I've been very influenced. I've been very involved in Scottish solidarity with Kurdistan. And the Kurdish movement, um, because of the fact that it's spread across multiple states, um, has had to Mm. think very carefully about the nature of the type of – they can't just declare a country. Um, It would be simultaneously, you know, they're overthrowing the governments of four countries. It's not going to happen. So what they've decided to do is to go – re-examine the whole principles under which states uh, exist and, and come up with this idea that's called democratic confederalism, where you work at the very lowest level and you build up the confederal structures. And just lastly, I think there is a strong emphasis on uh, environmentalism and the protection of natural resources. It's about the whole approach to nature um, that uh, human society has. And that if we're going to build a new country and a new state, we need to think very strongly about that relationship, my view would be we need to go a whole lot further and think about it.
1: Mm. Uh, Michael, thank you for that. No, I'm really, really... Encouraged by what you said there, because uh, as I said at the start of my presentation, this this book was 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 written specifically to fill a gap in in Commonweal's prospectus. So on the environmental side, um, we also have our Common Home Plan, which which is that Green New Deal, uh, which is you know because it, it's it's also kind of looking at climate change, but beyond climate change, because climate change itself is not the only ecological catastrophe facing us at the moment. Um, if we if we go net zero, but we're still filling the oceans full of plastic, we're, we're still all dead. We kill all the pollinators, we're still all dead. So we have that side of things. And what you said there about having a national commission whose job is to set up the infrastructure of a state, that is precisely the model that we wrote into how to start a new country which was that future neutral first three years between Indyref and independence to set up all those things. And we've got an entire chapter there on, on just what you said there on how to, how to engage with people and write a constitution. So sortie doesn't everything along that entire line of what would be almost 30 years of policy work, but it fits the gap in between. And we've got those other two books that, um, are probably what you're looking for in addition to to sorted. Um, I do take what you're saying about this, this sounding prescriptive, and it is in the sense that it's a manifesto for a common wheel Scotland. If folk are wanting to to nuance it, go into more detail, or to oppose it and go into a different direction, that's great. That's where we have those democratic discussions. But what I said earlier, the 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 other questions uh, also applies that. If we can at least say this is the kind of level of policy discussion we want to see and we can all try and match that and one-up each other, that's how the, the 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 best plans and the best ideas will then come to fruition. They might be ours. I don't what many of them would be. They might come from a completely unexpected direction.
2: Should local government be devoid of political parties, i.e. Flat-pack democracy, where people elected have wholly the local people's well-being at heart.
1: Oh, this is a discussion I have with quite a few people, including my wife. Um, I do have this niggling sensation that party politics always kind of is an inevitable. Part of democracy because as soon, even if you tell everyone, right, none of you belong to a political party, you end up with two or three people agreeing to, (laughs) to, to whip each other into compliance, and you've just reinvented political parties. Um, But we do see the, we do see successful elements of that, even in Scotland's current local authorities, where you do often get local councillors who, um, you know, represent the interests of their community. almost above and beyond their their party affiliations. Uh, It doesn't always work, but it often does, and you can have really good discussions with people who, at a party level, you completely oppose, but on a community level, on this issue, you completely agree. Um, And at least at that level of discussion, I want to see more of. I'd love to see more of a, a culture of the coalition of the willing around issues. Um, which allows us to, to, even if we maintain party, political parties, we can be a bit less tribal about it. Um, uh, but we also do find that as you go more local, parties do become less of a thing anyway, because, you know, everyone in the village still has to get along and they all kind of agree with what part of the village needs to be fixed, more or less, if, if not how to fix it. I don't know if that really answers your question, but, but I can see the hope for that, at least.
6: Yeah. Uh, hello, Craig. And uh, thanks again for a uh, great uh, contribution to another a terrific book. I was wondering, do you ever feel a bit discouraged at the lack of uptake of your 200 or so policy papers, common sense, commonweal policy papers that haven't been taken up by the Scottish government?
1: That's the the trauma of being a political lobbyist, isn't it? I've always said that uh, you know some political think tanks are quite happy to put a report, put a policy paper. You get your splash in the newspaper, and that's great. That was a a success. I'm not happy until the paper has been implemented, um, which means I'm not often very happy. (laughs) No, no, no. Um, it is. You know we are just one small organisation in a vast democracy, uh, so we can't expect complete uptake on everything. But we are encouraged by the influence we often do have. Uh, we have seen national, uh, you know, national discussion discussions turn around what we've been saying. Quite notably last year with the the, the stuff around uh, the Scotland energy project uh, and and how us digging into the numbers of how little benefit Scotland was going to get from that really changed the way that that was approached in, in parliament um, and we're starting to see you know more stuff happening in that in that sense including Wales actually adopting our policy of a, a national energy company um, which was great to see and quite you know one of those ideas that came from a, a an unexpected direction shall we say um, but yeah it's Part of the joy of a lobbyist as well. I wake up in them up, up every morning. and I think, what am I fighting for today? Uh, what am I fighting to build today? Um, keeps the job interesting. <laughs>
3: um, I've nearly finished the book. I thought I had finished it, but I'm picking it up earlier, I noticed my bookmark is a few pages off the end, so I haven't quite finished it. Uh, I do feel determined to spread hope and uh, to uh, encourage people to. Vote for an independent Scotland and see
4: everything that an independent Scotland can bring them. As you've so brilliantly explained, over the
3: course of your tenure, years at commonwealth, you and your colleagues have produced this amazing body of work. Um, If I had a criticism of sorted, a general criticism, is that a lot of it seems to start assuming a blank slate. And of course, you never in life start with a blank slate. So if you're going to deliver an externalities tax, then there's a huge body of people who are not paying this tax at the moment who will fight you to Mm. the nail. Um, I felt reading through it that it didn't really address strategy or or your opponents or anything like that. It's like, oh, let's have universal basic income and let's have next nowadays tax. And maybe that's why you're getting a lot of feedback from people saying, oh, yeah, it all sounds great. It all sounds great until you start... Putting it into practice and finding out that there are these vested interests. I mean, even on the currency thing, we've seen we've almost lost before we started on currency because it felt like the City of London, through Andrew Wilson and Charlotte Street Partners, managed to nobble our chances of doing an independent currency that might affect their profits. So, just generally to comment on um, on the kind of the battle side of this policy implementation
1: hmm Uh, that's the eternal dilemma between breadth and depth um almost if you look at the book you'll see a lot of um uh, a lot of the policies highlighted in bold that was a deliberate choice through the book to sort of catch your eye on the idea that we're 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 putting out there a great many of them have an entire policy paper sitting behind behind them that that goes into the, the the implementation and the rationale and a lot more of that um on the externality tax specifically, there's a great story there uh, of, of political victory. Um, when we were writing the Common Home Plan, that's when we uh, settled on this idea of an externality tax that would that would bring into our products the true cost of them, including the cost to the planet of producing them, with a view to essentially out, out-competing them with the, the products that aren't causing damage. Um, and I remember sitting in in uh, Robin McAlpin's living room with a pint of coffee in me. Um, both of us thinking, "This this one's going too far. We can't we can't sell this one to Scotland. This one's going to get the one that the, the going to get the headlines in the Daily Mail and the Financial Times railing against those wingnut lefties." But we don't see any other, other 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 approach here that makes sense. So we'll put it in and we'll take the hit when it comes. And the hit didn't come. Then the Scottish Climate Assembly uh, came together. Uh, This was a a demographically weighted representative sample of Scotland. And they came up with ideas for what Scotland could do to address the climate emergency. And one of the things they came up with was an externality tax, especially on imports, to charge imports based on the the, the pollution they cause elsewhere, uh, on the basis that Scotland can legislate to create 100% renewable energy, but we can't tell another country to turn off all of its coal power plants that are powering its factories that make its goods. Therefore, if we buy products from them and they're causing pollution, that's our pollution, but we can't legislate it away. The externality tax is essentially correcting for that. They came up with that idea. That that was adopted by about 90% of the Assembly which means if the Assembly is doing its representation properly, that means that essentially 90% of Scotland agrees with this policy. But wow, (laughs) really, Um, the Scottish Government dismissed the idea out of hand. Now, they didn't get it from us, but the EU didn't dismiss it out of hand. They've been talking about this kind of thing as well. And they're coming up, they, they have thrashed out an agreement across the EU, to bring in uh, what's known as a carbon border tax. It's only looking at car- uh, carbon, um, carbon pollution, not other, other pollutants that I feel the like externality tax would do. And it's only looking at goods entering the single market because the EU is a bit of a, a trade fortress that way. But that's an externality tax being adopted by the EU to be implemented at the end of this year. So that radical idea that we thought, absolutely, we're going to get kicked back for this, is now going to happen. So, even on the radical ideas, sometimes you get the good news story as well.
2: Thanks. Uh, There's another comment here from Lynn O'Hen. She says, I live in Toryville, Aberdeenshire, and the Tories overrule every other party, often to the detriment of the community. Listening to
0: Craig's uh, podcast the other day with Richard Murphy, and I was intrigued by what you were saying about free ports creating additional borders. It just popped into my head when you were talking about carbon borders there, so I was just wondering, is there anything in that sort of concept of the we're now going to have several borders within Scotland where regulations are different one side from the other. Is that potentially? quite helpful to us in negating the arguments about you know, the, the potential damage of having a border between England and Scotland. Can we get some good out of this, even though I completely agree that Freeport's, I, I
1: would rather not have them? I mean, the very fact that it's happening probably outweighs any political uh, leverage we may get, get from it, to be honest, because it is a, a terrible plan. It adds all sorts of complexity. Just for everyone else, the idea of a Freeport is you create this zone where you can import components turn them into goods and then export them without paying the import tariffs or any export tariffs. But if the good leaves the freeport and comes into your domestic economy, then it has to pay the tariffs. So you create a customs border around the freeport. Now, a traditional freeport would be a chained-off zone in the harbour or at the airport where you did all this kind of thing. But in the the UK's freeport model, you have this vast zone and companies in the freeport zone can be located within you know, anywhere within it. So you could have, hypothetically, components coming into uh, Rosyth and being trucked to bigger to be turned into something and then trucked back to Rosyth to be exported. Don't know what kind of good you would want to do that with. But how do you then say, right, well, we've made the thing and made the widget and bigger. Can we not just send it over to Hamilton instead? Nobody's really watching, are they? You have end up with this very complex very porous customs border that is absolutely impossible to 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 regulate um so there's the potential of of vast amount of tax fraud and regulation fraud happening out, out of that yes it does paint the people who are saying putting up a border in uh, because of Independence as a terrible thing as, as you know, some, at least somewhat hypocritical if they are then carving out micro chunks of the UK and turning each one of those warehouses into its own customs border. Um, we will just have to see how these free ports actually work out because even the regulations that cover them are still extremely vague. Hi, uh, just some reflections and,
6: and input and, and maybe an idea for, for Craig. Um, obviously, um, some of the policies have kind of seeped in maybe to our daily lives that Commonwealth have introduced over the years. And some of the the things that there seems to be almost unanimous consensus on around community, local democracy and all that, it doesn't not exist today, we already have it. Um, There's a great community hub called The Pyramid being built down in Anderson in Glasgow. Uh, We have almost world leading community wealth building down in in North, North Ayrshire. So, it's it's an even better scotland rather than a blank page or, or whatever yeah but i think everything yeah. re- everything relies on engaging the wider public the fact of the matter is is most people don't participate in scotland in politics and have busy lives so we have to find a way to break into them i think the content of sorted and the stuff there is is it can engage people um but the fact of the matter is most of them are not going to read a 291-page book. So the idea is um, between us all, whatever we're in, political parties, movements, common wheel, whatever, maybe pull our resources and try and float this as a TV program, uh, a, Netflix, a Netflix series, something along the earth where we can break it down into chunks that will spring curiosity, engage people, balance it with examples in communities that are live today where people can relate to their own areas and and raise people to say, well, what if we applied this in your area and across the whole country? What if we had a political system that enabled that and allowed us to do that? Um, And another thought, just if it's out of print and you're reprinting again, I think the very first page says Commonweal is... Uh, on the left of the political spectrum. (laughs) To me, that reads as almost excluding potentially half (laughs) of fellow citizens. So maybe miss that out and maybe the world needs to move away from the old ideologies and the old rigid ways of thinking. So especially for younger people, float your ideas, but don't badge it with left or right or anything old-fashioned, drive the curiosity by just saying, what what do you think of this? Is this worth doing? What do do you think about this? And, you know, people on the traditional right are not going to be against community wealth building or local democracy. So just maybe don't paint yourself into a corner when the people to get to the independence means for the beginning, we don't exclude them before we've even started, can I? So just some thoughts there, but... Go for the TV series
1: there's a big one for you oh I I you know if someone if someone wants to to put a word in at Netflix <laughs> <laughs> we'll see what we can do there we are working on other ways of getting this out here uh we're, we're considering doing an audiobook uh, version of, of the book as well for instance um I do most of my reading now via audiobooks and I'm, I'm sure a lot of people are the same and and we do absolutely appreciate that that point of it, trying to get folk to read a 300 page document. Um, I see the readership of the policy library, <laughs> if you want, for people who want to go even deeper than that. Hands up here if you've ever actually read a common policy paper, cover to cover. Not you, Simon. <laughs> <laughs> I know, I get it. <laughs> um, so we're, we're looking at other ways of of, of of trying to break the ideas down and make them, make them, make them, make them even more bite size. Um, so yeah, any any other ideas that that folk have, or any conversations that people want to have with their friends, or if people want a bit of help to get the uh, uh, conversations with their their friends, and and you know, the campaign centre is another good place to do that to share ideas and help help get 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 them out there. And George Clooney to pray, play play cricket? I look that old. I'm, I'm not that great, am I? You know, we've already got ideas, George Clooney, but on a on a
6: serious note, it would be a way to use all the 10 years of effort. And we mm-hmm. have the talents within the Yes movement. We have broadcasters. We have people connected. You know, we've got Pat Kane and all that. So producing it wouldn't be a problem. Mm-hmm. Getting it out there would be the challenge. But it would also give us something in common to unite behind, to say, right, let's make this happen. We can do something to counteract the media bias of all other views and, and policies and show people that there's actually an alternative way of, of doing things. So, um, aye, let's not dismiss it as just a fantasy. Yeah.
1: No, and, and uh, as as Fiona's just said in the chat there, the the, um, the, the stuff that uh, she and Marlene are doing at Independence Live is, is absolutely fantastic for this kind of outreach as well. The folk who will who will end up watching the recording on of, of this on on YouTube or whatever else it goes up will will vastly outweigh the number of people who are in the room tonight. Um, um, so so yeah, anything we can do to to help promote indie live that way um, and help promote each other is is always welcome.
4: Some really stimulating stuff there. I thought um, you know you it does give you it does give you hope. And passion, I think, when you hear a a prospectus of building a a better country uh, and that it can be done. So, uh, again, thanks very much for coming along, everyone. Again, thanks, Craig, for, for coming along tonight. Thank you to
1: everyone else as well. It's been a great chat. I've really found it informative and I've really enjoyed it. Thanks.
0: Thanks for listening to our Friday podcast and we'll be back again next Friday with more. If you've missed any, you can catch up on our website, scottishindiepod.scot. Also, we're very late to the Facebook party, I know, but we have just started a Facebook page. Uh, this was really because... We realise that quite a few of our listeners still like to use Facebook, which was a little bit of a surprise to us. But um, if that's where you like to get your social media, then that's where we're going to be. You'll find us on Facebook under Scottish Independence Podcasts. So drop by and say hello. That's
2: all. Bye now.